Hey, welcome everybody to Marketing Management and Money. I'm not sure if I'm going to count this as a formal episode. I think I'm going to count it as a side conversation. However, uh, I want to I point this out. Most of our side conversations are based on just like our opinion of stuff. Uh, this is going to be very business oriented, but I do have a question that I want to run past you. And I'd like to get your professional uh, advice on, on this question. Okay. So here's the situation. Um, I am in the uh, um, contracting phase of a European expansion right now. So uh, one of the companies that, uh, that, I, that I work with, um, I got the cool opportunity of getting to do uh, a European expansion for them. And so I've traveled to Europe a couple times. Uh, we've covered that a little bit on the show. Uh, made some business connections, and it's going exceptionally well. We've developed a new product that we're going to introduce specifically for Europe, and that's going to finish uh, getting out of uh, the uh, R&D uh, stage here in the next couple of weeks. And so I'm going to show up in uh, in Europe with a, a brand new product and brand new market, and you know, and so you know, should should be a, a really cool opportunity. I'm looking forward to this. But uh, what has been happening throughout this particular journey is that uh, I'm recognizing uh, a lot of the subtle nuances. And, and I think that for people who are looking at doing a business expansion, I mean, this is a European business expansion, and so it's going to have that international component to it. But honestly, if you're looking at, you know, launching a second location or, you know, if you're looking at uh, maybe uh, hiring, uh, you know, a company that's now, you, you know, you're going to take all of your marketing from in-house and move it to out, you know, outsourced, mm-hmm. like the same subtle nuances, you know, come into play. So, you know, if you're listening to, uh, to this and you're like, well, I don't have any intentions of going international. I, I would say these concepts are, apply for any major expansion that, that you're going to do with your company. And so if it requires you to rethink things, gives you a little bit of a clean slate opportunity, you know, so we've been looking at this, there's, there's a couple things that we want to clean up while we're doing this, you know, it's like, Hey, you know, uh, here in the U S market, we're, we're already in contracts. Some of those contracts were negotiated well, some of those were contracts were negotiated poorly and we're stuck in those contracts and we have to navigate Ouch. all those things, you know, but in Europe, like I don't have contracts with anybody. So I literally can set it up how I want with the experience of what we've done in the U S to kind of go off of and say, okay, don't do this, you know, mm-hmm. and one of those things, for instance, just to, uh, you know, kind of bring it into a little bit more tangible is we're going to specifically keep this product offline. So we're not going to offer this product online in Europe. And so the only way that you can get this product is through distributors. And that's going to make it uh, more favorable. The distributors are going to love that, you know, um, but it also gives me a lot of control because the second you put something online, I'll tell you what, you lose a lot of control. People out there, if you are looking at doing like an Amazon business, and it's great. A lot of people make a lot of money with Amazon businesses, but you lose a lot of control. And people don't realize, you know, they've got a good business and they're like, oh, we should expand into Amazon. And the second they expand into Amazon and you start playing the games and, you know, it's... So so for the listeners, what kind of, I mean... I know most of the answer, but I'm curious to see from your perspective as well. <clears throat> what kind of control do they lose? I mean, what are they, what is that trade off? Because, you know, sometimes the only thing they're thinking about is revenue, mm-hmm. right? I can make more revenue, um, but we forget about the backside or the operational side that, that inherently other problems creep in because of. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a great question. So uh, in this particular instance, uh, what you've got, well, not even this instance, let me go a little bit broader here. Uh, so in answer to your question, if you have a product that really moves on Amazon, you'll get third-party sellers. And uh, with this particular product, we get sellers that we don't even know who they are. We don't know how they got our product. 
And it's a big enough issue, I can tell you this, that Amazon has a method to combat it where you can uh, subscribe to this program that they have. At the time we looked into it, there was no cost to subscribe to it. I don't know if they are doing a cost now. Uh, We looked into it about a year ago. Anyway, it's a tracking system where you put an, an identifier, like a sticker or something on your packaging, and then you can now track it through Amazon. And it's really, really a cool process. Like, so Amazon, for as much as I either love or hate them, there are things I love about them and things I hate mm-hmm. about them, right? And yeah, that's probably yeah. everybody. But uh, they're very... Uh, they're very up on their process. Like the way that they go about their process is very, you know, like very cutting edge. They, they, they are setting the standard for a lot of companies to follow with, with the way they process. And so this was no exception. And I apologize. Uh, I was not actually planning on going down the Amazon road. And so I don't remember off the top of my head what that, uh, what that was called, the tracking system that, they, that they've implemented. We opted not to do it because we sell uh, primarily outside of Amazon. And so uh, I didn't want uh, to give Amazon additional control or leverage or dictation in how things should or shouldn't be operated. And so that's the kind of stuff that you run into with Amazon is when you start, uh, when you start going with Amazon. And, and it's not like a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to get into this contract and now I have to follow the contract. Amazon doesn't work that way. But they are such a big player and they, you know, they set the standard for so many things. It's kind of like, you know, I, when I travel the world, the U.S. is still the standard. And so I, I can get by with, you know, U.S. references. I can get by with English. I can get by with the dollar you know, in all of these, you know, foreign countries. And if you look at like the population of the U.S. compared to the population of the rest of the world, we're, we're what, three, four percent of the total population, you know, not not a huge percentage. But yet, because we're such a big player in business, we get to kind of dictate terms, uh, you know, whether other, you know, other countries like it or not. Well, Amazon's the same way. They're such a big player that they get to dictate terms, whether you like it or not and so you get to follow a lot of their standards just because that's what your customers are now expecting you to do and so um but when you start you know when you start selling via amazon um and oh i'll tell you be aware of all of the fees the warehousing the fulfillment (laughs) like and it's not that they're i mean they're small percentages but they add up. Well, and some of them aren't small percentages. True. Well, true. Because like some of them are based look off of ad spend. volume. Man, ad spend, and they call it a cost, you know, average cost of sale, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but like your ad spend going through, you know, so when you get on Amazon, you see sponsored products, right? Right. Um, man, that eats into it. Like you can lose 10 or 20% of your margin on ad spend. And, and when I say 10 or 20%, obviously it totally depends the product that you're moving, but don't be shocked to see those kinds of numbers. And so if you've got, you know, if you've got an item that you've only got 40% margin on, and then you give up 20% on ad spend, and then you give up another 10% for Amazon fees, and all of a sudden, you're only making ten percent on this thing. Yeah, you, you know? better pray you're doing huge volume. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you look at it, and you're like, oh, my sales doubled on Amazon. I'm like, your sales doubled, but your margin got slashed, yeah. and so you need your sales to quadruple to break even. Uh, and, you know, so be able. And, and if that didn't make any sense to you, do the financial calculations. <laughs> <laughs> we hammer that left and right. You know, and so anyway. Um, so jumping back, uh, we made a conscious decision going into Europe that we're going to keep this offline. And, uh, and so we're limiting the number of partners so that we have more control over that. Uh, So right now I'm looking at expanding into Europe with, uh, three or four partners and And none of those partners are going to do online. Uh, no, no. 
and that'll that'll be part of like the, the contract. part of the contract. Okay. Yeah, is to, is to just tell them that it's like, look, this is going to be a B two B distribution model, and we want to stick with a B two B distribution model. This is this is a high professional product, um, and and yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish that I could be a little bit more specific, but the deal is not done, and so I've got to keep some things a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit confidential here. But this this is a, a high level professional item, and so uh, you know we've made the decision to keep it in the professional realm, and so we're going through distribution that would go direct to businesses, and you know charge a little bit of a premium, but also keep the quality high. And so higher quality, higher premium, um, you know that's that's the model that we're you know that we're looking at. So I'm looking at expanding this uh, you know expanding this product line, setting up some distribution. And I was going, this is where the question comes in. All right. All right. Here, here we are halfway through the, <laughs> the episode and I'm finally getting to the question that I have for you. Um, so I'm looking at setting up this distribution model and I was going to go with a tiered price point. So you buy one through 10, right. you get X price. You buy 11 right. through okay. 100, yeah. you get a little bit of better price. You buy 100 through 500, you get better pricing, you know, over a thousand, you buy, you know, you get great pricing and and uh and so what i was going to do is i was just going to uh, create a uh, a price sheet and i was going to be like look here's your pricing model that just put it in black and white and this is you know this is what you have right now keep in mind uh on the international front uh as much as i talk to other uh, businesses and you know people that are doing international uh, I feel like I'm right on par with them. International is a tough game, and there's very few people who are like solid, solid on understanding international. I've talked to, you know, uh, I'm, I'm doing air quotes right now that says, you know, professional consultants, professional international consultants, both in the U.S. and in Europe, and some of them have been excellent and others have been worthless, you know, like I'm thinking to myself, I could have Googled a better response than what you gave me. You know, uh, I did have one that uh, I I asked for a full fledged refund uh, on right. all of their consulting fees because you know I'm like this is garbage. I'm sorry, you guys provided zero insight. Um, but so uh, you know when uh, when when I'm when I'm talking with people uh, and looking at this uh, you know this pricing model. I just figured a, a tiered volume pricing model would make sense. It's very common. Mm -hmm. You know, you see it all over. So uh, I'm talking to a, uh, a friend of mine, and she says she's like, single price. And I'm like, what do you mean single price? She's like, one price. Whether they buy one of them, whether they buy 5,000 of them, single price. Why not? And I looked at it, and I'm just like, because that's not what you do. That's that's why not. <laughs> She's like, give me a real answer. Why not? And so I started thinking about it. And the, uh, you know, and so while I was thinking about it, she, she's like, let me tell you why. Okay. So she, she says, well, you're dealing with international. The international accounting is going to be a beast. And so if you have single price, you're eliminating a lot of confusion. It's like, look, this is the price that it goes. Every single country, doesn't matter. Boom, here you go. This is your single price. I mean, obviously, there's an exchange rate that you have to do. But that's, a, that's to her right. point is to right. say, look, if I've got one price, it's a lot easier to calculate my exchange rates as opposed to having to calculate exchange rates for, you know, a whole tier of pricing. Right. It's like, if you've got one price, you know, and I said, well, that, you know, they, they don't buy volume. And she's like, isn't that a good thing? She's like, you're trying to expand into Europe. If they're buying volume, that's risky. You've just introduced risk into that. Now, I guess I should clarify this. Single price freight is on their end. So the variable becomes freight. If they want better pricing, they buy at the volumes that make sense for their freight. So if they want to ship a container, they're going to buy whatever fills a container. If they want to ship by pallet, they buy whatever 
does by pallet. If they ship individual, right. <clears throat> you're okay. going to pay as much for shipping as you're going to pay for the product. Right. And, and so they're naturally incentivized by freight to buy in bulk. And so I don't have to arbitrarily come up with those rates. They just follow market trends of, of what freight is. And you put all the freight on their end, you know, which usually is advantageous for them to import as opposed to you to export, right? Because then they're, okay. they're dealing with all of the uh, um, paperwork and, and different things um, in their own country right. you yeah. know you're you're not having to find someone to facilitate those you know yeah, those things for you right? Okay. All right so um so anyway uh she's like yeah just if, if if you if you're trying to manage your cash flow if they're buying in bulk you're going to get hit with these surprise orders that you don't know, okay, so they do a big order because they're incentivized to get a container's worth because, you know, they're they're trying to hit the freight and your discount, so they might overbuy. And so you would just get hit with really big orders occasionally. She's like, wouldn't it be better to have steady flow, easier to manage your cash flow? She's like, they're managing the freight side, so it doesn't cost you anything different. And I'm like, huh, okay. So I did in this minute, I finally came up with a reason. I'm like, okay, I have, I have, I have a good reason to go with a tiered, you know, pricing model. Cause you can see my brain turning like crazy. <laughs> well, I, this is why I'm asking you. Okay. So, um, so I, I came up with a reason. I'm like, if I have someone who is going to buy consistently in lower volume, then the tiered model gives me more margin on the lower volume because I'm giving away Correct. margin for that. Right. Her comment back to me was, okay, you're looking at three to four partners to cover all of Europe. I'm like, yeah. She's like, are any of these low volume? Like, why, why are you even considering low volume? Because... You, you know, every single one of your partners is covering multiple countries. We're talking, you know, they've got... But low volume is relative. Okay. Uh, I.e., if I'm selling Ferraris, <laughs> right, two is low volume. Ten is high volume, right? Right. If, if you're selling... If, if I'm selling pencils, <laughs> okay, <laughs> low volume is a million, high volume is a billion, right? Okay, yeah. That. So, so it's kind of relative as you think about it. But but the the tiered pricing that I was going to put in place, I don't expect any of these potential partners to be on the low volume side. Like I was going to price it to encourage all of them to be on the high volume side. Do you, oh wow! It's, you better put this as a sideline because I'm going to start talking. Okay. So do you understand? <laughs> we, we still, we, we, we are, you know, 20 minutes into this and we haven't decided if it's a sideline or an episode yet. <laughs> um, do you know uh, how many of the product can fit in an average container? I mean, do you know the back side of everything of this? We're getting that. So um, this is a large... That, that's going to determine... Because when I hear large volume, my first thing is, okay, is large volume 10? Or is yeah, large volume yeah. so, 100? So, so this is interesting. Okay, I'm going to answer your question, but we're, we're going to walk around the block but to see, go here, next door. All right, but here's the one fallacy that you have to remember. Why people... The number one reason why people do tiered cost structures, right? They tear mm -hmm. it is because they're trying to pass on the efficiencies of mass producing something versus producing one, right? So if, if I'm producing more, I get more efficiency out of my mark, uh, manufacturing models. Correct. So I'm passing that cost savings on to my uh, vendor, you know? So, okay. Oh, there's a lot to unpack in this. Um, that's, the, that's the sole reason why you do it not to encourage them to buy higher volume it's because we can usually produce something more efficiently when we do more you, you want economies of scale yeah okay so if you look at manufacturing uh, i'm, I'm going to go uh, asian manufacturing versus u.s manufacturing Ooh. this is a 
big debate going on Ooh. right now, okay, especially with the tensions between the U.S. and China. And so a lot of that manufacturing is moving to other places still, you know, over Correct. in Asia. They're following the Asian model of very low wages. And uh, that part of the world is fantastic at manufacturing. That is yeah. a strong competitive advantage that they have. So uh, and maybe this needs to be a side conversation because you're getting into my opinion here. <laughs> uh the U.S. wants to, you know, bring manufacturing back to the U.S. And you hear that in the political rhetoric. You hear that with businesses. And, you know, I've looked at this. And when I say I've looked at this, like I haven't read an article. Like I've dug into this because this is, you know, this is one of the things that we're trying to do here. And, and I'll tell you that the only way, like – we cannot, and when I say we, I'm talking the U.S. here, the U.S. cannot copycat China and expect to have any sort of competitive advantage. If they just take a Me Too process, exactly, they're just going to be worse at it, you know? And, and so... Well, the manufacturing isn't the issue. The quality of the product isn't the issue. It's the cost associated with producing the product is the issue between... I'm even going to argue against that. Our labor costs are sometimes 20 times that. So Our energy costs are significantly higher. Okay, but... See, if, that's... It's... You know, I, oh, yeah. You better keep this a sideline. <laughs> <laughs> because we have to decide on something <laughs> at some point. Th this is my argument. If you want to... The, the reason why, okay, uh, I, I love the example of pens. So pens, historically, in the early 1900s, were very expensive, and they were fountain pens, mm -hmm. right? And then all of a sudden, the ballpoint pen was invented. And pens are one of the biggest throwaway commodities ever. You know, everyone just puts a little bowl of pens out there. Yeah. Well, 100 years ago, pens were very expensive. So what changed the thing that changed was technology. Right. Okay. The yeah. technology, the way that we went about doing pens changed. The pen itself really hasn't changed all that much, right? Right. And so um, if you look at the technology, and this is where my argument comes in against, uh, you know, Asian manufacturing. You think technology is going to be that big of a player in the next? I think technology has to be the driving force to bring manufacturing back to U.S. if that is the goal. I absolutely agree with that comment. And so going back to your, so economies of scale are the old model of manufacturing. Now this is, okay, This yeah. we are officially a side conversation right now because <laughs> anyone at this point can start arguing and saying, I disagree with you. And so this is going to stay a side conversation. But um, so manufacturing is based on economies of scale, but we've gotten to the point that we are overproducing and we're creating so much junk. We're filling up landfills with, you know, like we have a consumer mentality and consumer markets. Correct. Okay. Well, if you look at, um, you know, like uh, building, not overproducing, but target producing what you need. And so economies of scale only work when I have just tons of consumerism that's just all wanting the exact same thing, but it kills all the customization. So with the technology that we have, so going back to the example of the product that we're producing, one of the reasons why Europe is interested in it is because we are using advanced manufacturing techniques to produce it. It's a very, you know, very right. basic yeah. product. Like the product itself, uh, not exciting, you know. But the manufacturing uh, process is very, very innovative, which means that we don't have as big of a barrier uh, for economies of scale, you know, when you're talking about, well, hey, isn't it better? Like we, so we do small run manufacturing or what we're getting into is small run manufacturing using advanced manufacturing techniques, i.e., I can produce 20 units for the same cost that I can produce 500 units. And so therefore, I can say, well, I shouldn't say the same cost, but for relatively close enough that 
I can now reduce inventory holding costs to offset the uh, manufacturing costs because, you know, this is a just-in-time concept. Yeah, but that's that. Yeah, that's now see that's an interesting concept because if there is no economy of scales in the manufacturing, meaning it's the same price to produce unit one as it is unit five hundred, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Then, then your efficiencies are neither good nor bad. Mm-hmm. It's just the fact that um, to create the the prototype mm-hmm. does that make sense? Is not. I don't have to spend thousands to do a prototype. Uh, I can do a prototype fairly inexpensive. Um, and, well, you know you know what it is. I mean, prototyping is the expensive part of R&D, working out those glitches and fine-tuning the metrics and, you know, how does this fit into here? And, wait a minute, we yeah, screwed yeah, yeah. up the, you know, the parameters on this piece. and um, But I would have to think that if if the cost per to produce the prototype is is almost the same as the the finished run um as long as there's a market for it i mean that's a in some ways it's an amazing concept well that's what i'm wondering i'm like is this a is this a strong competitive advantage if you know if if you could buy exactly what you want, uh, do you remember? I think the movie was Father of the Bride. It, it was Steve Martin, and there's oh. this scene where he's in the grocery store, yeah. and he's buying hot dogs in a pack of six and hot dog buns in a pack, pack of, of eight, eight, and he's pulling out two of buns. the buns, and yeah. and he and you know I mean it's all comedic. But it's him having this, you know, traumatic breakdown in the store because he's like, why do I need to buy two extra buns when this comes in a pack of six? And, you know, and it's kind of funny. But in reality, if you think about it, you know, like that's what we want. We want to buy what we need, not what, you know, what, what fits. And so if I could go to a customer and I could say, hey, you know what, you set your own MOQs. Like it's but it's no longer five hundred. It's you tell me what you want to buy. See, they're starting to do that in the textile industry <clears throat> with shirts and other things like that. Clothing, you know, I I buy it to fit. You mm-hmm. know, and I send in my measurements. I buy it to fit. They ship it directly to my house. the The only problem with that is, is that yeah, that shirt is fifty bucks instead of twenty bucks. Yeah. So, it, as <laughs> long as I'm, you know, there's a niche market for it. There certainly is because you know. See, so those, those, you know, there's a several of them that are doing really well. And, and this is interesting because I should clarify this. With the process that we're doing, we are not cheaper than traditional manufacturing. Oh, yeah. You, well, you can't be. Yeah. And, and so. Because you don't have the economies of scale. See, that's the difference. Yeah. That's, but that's what's also fascinating about it is that generally most manufacturing, the first little bit is very expensive, but then you go into huge runs. Right. And then you get the economies of scale. So now it becomes pennies versus, you know, thousands right. to produce it. Yeah. Because the molds are set up, the the manufacturing line is set up. Mm-hmm. See, I mean, all those efficiencies increase. But in, you know, the additive manufacturing, uh, I make an argument today that the, the efficiencies aren't quite there yet. No, they aren't. They absolutely are And aren't. I don't know if they ever will be. But see, maybe so. So if you look at this, and this goes into the theory of so, I put it into three categories: low volume, medium volume, and high volume. Now, this is all relative to you know, I mean, your your mm-hmm. pencil Ferrari concept. Yeah, yeah. But um, you cannot do this theory that I'm talking about um, in high volume. It does well. You can. I've never, I've never been able to come up with a formula that makes sense. But in low and medium volume runs, you can. And so, if you were to graph this, there's a break, break even threshold that will hit at a certain number of units. At which point, you would have been better off going to a economy of scale mass volume run. But see, economies of scale are high upfront capital, which 
creates a lot of risk. Right. So if I reduce my upfront capital and I say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to make it uh, quicker to market, uh, more customizable, only run small to medium runs. And because it's quicker to market, we're going to introduce six new products instead of one new product. And the cumulative of the six should give me the profitability of the one. That's the theory. Mm. <laughs> too, too bad there wasn't a video on you because uh, your body language is what's talking right now. Uh, well, it's uh, here's the, the crazy thing about as we advance with technology is that um, technology has a window in there that has high levels of cert uncertainty um, just because we don't, two things. One, we don't know how it's going to affect the market and we don't know if the technology is sustainable. Mm. Right? Yeah. So, um, and and some technology changes so fast that you, you, you constantly, see that's the tough thing about innovation is if you're, if you're in an industry where you're innovative, you have to continue to innovate. That's how you stay competitive is innovation. So I, oh my gosh, and this has been years. Because I can be innovative and start the first cell phone, but guess what? That's, that original cell phone is worthless today. There was a report that I read years ago, so long ago that I don't even remember it, but the concept of it was fascinating. The author of the report was making the argument that no technology has ever been completely um, like disrupted to the point that it was abandoned. And, and so he was making the argument that even when you have old technology, it just moves into a different realm. And he brought up some really compelling points, uh, you know, so at the time uh, when, when this report came out, like I said, this is years ago, digital cameras were just getting good enough that it was this argument of whether professional photographers should go digital or whether they should go film. Okay, so what was that, 15 years ago or something? Yeah, maybe you know? more, at least. And so, um, so he used the film industry, and he pointed out that every technological breakthrough in film, there's still a market for the old technology that is being used for a commercial purpose, you know, and film for, for a commercial purpose. For a per commercial purpose, really? Yeah, and 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 he and he went through and he cited it, and and so his whole argument was to say technologies don't ever go away, you know, because every everyone's always nervous about oh well this is going to get replaced by the new technology, and I'm like well it's going to get replaced mainstream by the new technology. Yeah, mainstream it always does. See, that's why when he says commercial, I'm like, well, because mainstream, every a lot of things get replaced, but from a you got to realize there's what eight billion, nine billion people on this planet. I forget what the numbers are right now. It's a big number, and I don't think people can wrap their heads around what you know the number eight billion really means. Yeah. And so when you start thinking about to be a successful business, how many sales do you need to make? You know, most people are in the thousands. Right. And so what percentage of the population do you have to sell to? Nothing, nothing drop in the bucket, you right. know? And, and so, you know, to be able right. to still sell commercially doesn't mean that, like you, you, you can be niche upon niche upon niche and still have a successful business. Yeah, as long as you're connected into the niche. Correct. And that can be challenging. Yeah, because oh. those niche, well, it was like <laughs> crazy enough. I mean, I mean uh, fashion is an, amazing, is an amazing thing to watch because today kids are wearing what I wore in <laughs> junior high, right? I know, yeah. And they think they're super cool and I'm like... I was way cooler before you were cool. Right. I wore that first. <laughs> okay. You know, and think about it. When I was in junior high, high tops were just coming out then. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as the high tops came in, um, that was the new fad for basketball and things like that. And 
interesting enough, um, you know, they had the lace up and then you had the Velcro strap that came across the top. Uh-huh. And, and if you could afford, and back then, I mean, they were a pretty penny back then, you know. Oh, they uh, still are. My son buys shoes. Oh, my gosh. But, you know. Jordans? Oh, yeah. Jordans are always they're, they're, hundreds. Nasty. Yeah. yeah. But they're like yeah, investments. I, just, I see kids wearing Weird. that and I'm just like, you know, I, I don't know why. And maybe it's because. When I grew up with them, I look at them and I'm going, you're so outdated. That's Those shoes are heinous. <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> it's old technology, if you know what I mean. It's the yeah. old style, the old look. But um, anyways, fashion is an amazing one to watch as a case study because um, how things, the technology or the styles, okay, I'm going to use those words interchangeably for yeah. this example. They don't change. People just modify them based off of different colors or different materials now in order to to create a a newer feel, even though style was the same. Well, one that I find fascinating is phone sizes. So went small and now they're huge again. Yeah. Like they they constantly are bouncing between, oh, we're going to make this as teeny as possible. We're going to make this as big as possible. And you just see them, you know, go big and small and big. It's like a little accordion, you know. Yeah. So, but if you're, see, if you're innovative, that's the thing, whether it's styles, clothing, uh, I argue even to some degree with food, you know, if you're innovative, you have to continue to stay innovative if that's what you are. If you're a commodity though, think about it. If you're a commodity, it's solely, you're competing on cost. So you either have to, uh, cut, you know, raise your price or, you know, decrease your expenses to stay profitable as a commodity but a lot of times you can't increase your price yeah because you're competing with 10 other models and so you have to learn to become very very efficient in cutting your expenses to stay competitive you know high volumes okay so let's let's go back to the original question that you haven't answered yet so well <laughs> my argument is is the original question is is this you're you're trying well I don't know are you trying to compete as a innovation and technology are you trying to compete as a commodity in, in between? And so it's, it's, you're going to be driven one way or the other. No one stays in between. You either go one way or the other. Well, no, you do stay in between, but you do get pressure. Yeah. At, some, something's going to force you to one side of that pen, pendulum or another, you know, but like, honestly, true commodities are hard to come by. Very few things are true commodities. Yeah. And and so this particular product, uh, there's nothing innovative about the product, and so in well, your argument is the process that you're using. Yeah, but so to so, to your point, I would say that we don't get to dictate the price; the price gets to dictate us, and so we are trying to cut our cost to match the price. We have a little bit of room, you know, like a true commodity has no room. You have no control over the price whatsoever so my, we have a little bit of room but not much so my answer to your question is if if you have the ability to have economies of scale in the manufacturing it makes sense to have a tiered pricing structure if you do not have economies of sell a scale you know yeah um then then the argument should be you should have a single price because otherwise what you're doing is see with economies of scale your margins aren't changing because your efficiencies got greater with more, so your margins aren't changing. So do you think the customer would prefer a single price? It seems like a customer advantage to me. If um, I, I would probably go, I'd probably ask the question, um, commodity, so looking at your product, commodity means I'm, I'm selling, uh, keep number simple, I'm selling 100 a day. Um, Technology-wise, if I'm not a commodity, I'm in an innovation area or something, I'm selling two a day. Mm. That that To give that as kind of a feel. So if I'm looking at high volume being 100 a day, then I, I think customers are going to look to say, hey, the standard practice is some type of a tier. However, if I'm selling two a day, i.e. I'm selling Rolls Royces, you know. Well, okay, but... Then, then there is there is no... Matter of fact, you know, I, the do, people, if you go into a Ferrari store and you have to ask the price, <laughs> they're not selling to you, yeah. right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Actually, I wouldn't know because I've never done that. <laughs> On one of your trips, go into a Ferrari store. And ask the price. 
Yeah, just after after they've already looked me up and down. Yeah, because they don't. You know, the nice thing about it is, is dress nowadays is so across the board. You know, it's not. It, think about it. When, yeah, but when, accessories aren't like there's yeah, still. But yeah, they can. I mean, I, anyone. I can, will agree that it's not where it used to be. If I have a long sleeve shirt. They're not going to see my watch. They're not. I mean, I mean, and half the people you know, they come in and grungy. I think about it. When you grew up, if your pants had holes in it, what did it say about your social status? Poor. Yes. Okay. Now, if you have holes in your pants, what does it say about your social status? Uh, designer. You, you can't, yeah, but you can't really establish their socioeconomics, you know, background by their clothing anymore, right? You uh, can't. A little bit. A little bit. But generally, uh, generally, the average person, if you have holes in your pants, it doesn't say whether you're rich or poor. Yeah. So what I'm saying is there was a day when, when business, you know, where our parents, okay, when they went to out shopping, they got dressed up, right? Yeah. Okay. When you go out shopping now, half the people, you wonder if they even realize they're wearing what they're wearing, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> you're just like, Wow. Wow, there's obviously not a single mirror in your house because otherwise you would have never came out of your house well, like that. I'll tell you what's interesting. You go to a funeral, I, the wide range of attire at a funeral, because to me... I, I saw someone, true story, just this week, went to a funeral of a guy I've known for years. Um, and anyways, he, he, nice guy, but just... Not much family, so I thought, you know, I need to go. I respect the guy. When I showed up, there literally, okay, was someone in pajamas <laughs> sitting at the funeral. No, no, I'm. You think I'm joking? No, I had to do a double take. I was just like, you gotta be kidding me. What is this world coming to? You know. I, I saw a flyer once for it was a professional training. Uh, you know, like improve your business skills. It was entry level professional training, but it was professional training. You know, and and it put at the bottom, it said uh, no pajamas. Really? Uh, yeah, posted on the flyer. Uh, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so that's my point. Dress standards are just doesn't say much anymore. So. I think you have a hard time judging the social status of an individual. But I'm telling you, if you go into a Ferrari dealership and you have to ask the price um, versus, hey, let's that's the one I want. Let's do this deal. Yeah. Okay. So final clarification, because I know I, I don't want to get too super ranty, uh, but final clarification. Do you perceive it from the customer's perspective to be an advantage like is this something that the customer would like to have just a set price? You just go to them and you're like, look, we don't negotiate. We don't haggle. Literally, this is the price. You want to buy one. You want to buy 700. I don't care. Is that something that the customer is like, oh, I love this. Thank you for the simplicity. You gave me your best pricing. I don't even have to worry about it. Or is the customer like, well, I was really going to move a lot of these and now you're giving this guy who's moving three of them, you know, he's getting the same price. Now they're all going to have territorial contracts. So they're the only one covering these countries. All right. So here's my official answer. Ooh, official. Did we move back to an episode or are we still a side conversation? No, side conversation. Okay. So it's, it's, it's official side conversation. You might have to put a bleep in there. This is my answer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you do whatever <laughs> the Europeans want. But they don't know what they want because everyone's going to default to what, what is, they're used so to. Inside the States, I would argue that it's common practice that if you're in manufacturing, there's a tiered cost structure. So in, I don't know what it is in Europe. Well, I, I can tell you one of the countries that I'm working with, um, they are tiered and they expect tiered. So that's your answer. No, just why, because they expect it doesn't mean they for, want it. Why did we talk for 30 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. All right. <laughs> well, I don't, here's it. I don't know. Like, I mean, it is, it is a fascinating question. Humans are funny because. Because generally, if I can get a price break, 
See, because for me, think about it. Whether I sell one or I sell a hundred, I'm on, now I'm the buyer and I'm going to turn around and sell them. Okay. Right, right. So when I buy them. Because this is distribution. So. Yes. So if I can buy one or a hundred and, and after 10, I start getting a price breaks. After 50, I start getting price breaks, but I can sell them all for the same price. So my margins, if I can buy in volume, but sell them at the same price point, I make more money off the deal. That's what I want. I always want to make more money. Okay, but I'm looking at it from the risk mitigation because I'm going to them. This We're launching a new product into a new market. And if I'm telling them, I'm like, look, I gave you my best pricing, and if you want to, if you want to start small, you start small. Like I'm trusting that you're going to do your due diligence and push as many as you can. Now, mind you, there's still an economy of scale with freight. Yeah, 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 yeah. There and, is. And, and so we didn't eliminate the economy of scale. We just removed it from yeah the the, the one side. Yeah, you know. And so it's like I'm giving you the best pricing. If you want the economies, you figure out the freight. You work the system to get that awesome pricing, you know, because it's freight versus warehousing. That's that's what it always boils down to. So is, what are you, you going to do when they come back and say, uh, do you have any tiered pricing? So if I buy more units, I get a better price? I'd just say I already gave you my best price. Okay. You know, and it, it'd have to be a good, like, you can't give them a single price that's junk. Uh, yeah, I get that. <laughs> I know? get that. I, like... Like if, if you you want them you you want to do business with them you, I mean they could really if they could move a lot of project is advantageous for both yeah so I get that piece of it and so I don't know okay well glad that we uh, ran in circles hopefully you guys enjoyed it. <laughs> if anybody has a thought for Ryan, if, if you send can an email to Ryan at marketing management and money, telling him what he should do. Oh, uh, and make it quick. Cause I got to get back to some partners. Uh, I, I probably will. Have and if anyone already... is an international broker and can help make this deal sweeter for all the parties, Send an email to Ryan at Marketing Management of Money. He would love to hear from you. I I had a couple of brokers. They were serious and they were awesome. Uh, you know, they were telling me all they were going to provide, and I'm thinking to myself, cha ching, cha ching, cha ching. And so I, you know, I, I asked him. I'm like, all right, what what what's your price model? I, see, I wouldn't do good in a Ferrari dealership because I wanted to know what their price model was. And uh, you know, they told me their retainer plus everything. And wow. Uh, and I looked at Retainer, it. Huh? Yeah, uh, the the one. Um, it was to just cover their fees at our margins. Uh, it was I don't remember if it was a half a million or a million sales that just went to cover their fees. I'm like, I get that shipping, importing and exporting. Let's say let's put it that way. I get that importing and exporting is a little bit trickier, but there's good information out there on how to do it. Okay, so. I think that uh, you I mean, know it's in, like in the U.S. I think we're not as good at as it at it at as other countries. Well, because we're we're well, we we don't I'm, have. To I'm going to change that. I'm going to say the coastal states are, but we have a huge chunk inside of the U.S. that we just do business state to state. But even the coastal states. See, here's the thing: is there's enough consumers in the U.S. that I can just sell to the U.S. and have a very profitable. Yeah, company. that's true. That's but very true. you get in other parts of the world, you know, I mean, if I'm Luxembourg, you better believe that I partner with people. <laughs> I deal with people. I yeah. have to, you know, and yeah. in fact, there's not a country in Europe. And, you know, I mean, I could say the same thing for Africa or South America or what. There are some in Asia that are big enough. I mean, China's big enough that you could do. India's big enough that they could, you know, stand. In fact, lots of them. But, uh you know, but yeah, most of the most of the countries have to partner with other countries because they just don't have the population density that the U.S. has. You know, we're the third yeah. or fourth most populated country. You know, and then in terms of consumerism, like we're probably number one. 
I don't. We well, are. I don't know if we are. We are number one per capita, but I don't know if we are number one. You know, like gross, total gross yeah. domestic. Yeah. yeah, and and so well, I was just looking at stats of that, but I didn't. I was looking at uh, comparing some stuff between U.S. and Germany on some different. Well, that email I sent yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. I was digging into that to see and understand it better, and I need to dig into it some more. But because um, I could compare, you know, different countries, but yeah, like U.S. to Germany, it's not even comparison. U.S. and everything just slaughters Germany as a country. But um, you said that very offensively. No, you're, no, just, you're just talking no, no, no. the sheer volume of sheer consumerism. Volume. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, because you said U.S. compared to Germany and everything just slaughters them, no, and I'm like, yeah, their soccer team is pretty pissed right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just in consumer things, just our. Our volume of consumption. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so... Yeah, I don't compare it to anything else. That's I, what I'm saying. I love the Germans. They're awesome. A, a, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of U.S. companies, they don't have to go elsewhere, but, you know, all these other countries, they have to sell to other countries if they want to go big. And so it's a lot more common to see that yeah. international... Well, everything in... But that's just exactly right. When you get over into Europe, every country is intertwined. It, they are. The best way to understand Europe for someone who hasn't been there, it, it's like uh, Utah, um, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, California. In some ways, our our markets are all intertwined. We're all pulling resources from each other. We're doing business in all those other states. The, the, the boundaries between them are not that great. We can move product fairly easy. That's what Europe is. Yeah. We, like our states talk are their countries, countries. And we think countries, but it's... But they, they function more like a bunch of states and how they interact with each yeah. other. Yeah. You know, except for there's no federal government. Yeah, that's right. That's the big difference. Which is why, you know, <laughs> which is good and bad. Some things it's nice to have everyone on the same page, you know, but other things that you don't have that federal overreach. And so it's like, oh, hey, I get to literally do what I want to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. The, the EU is trying to do some stuff, but they're... But they still, you know, yeah, it's it's not a federal government. It's not a federal government, you know. So anyway, okay, wow, that was uh, that was fun. I think we'll wrap it up there. <laughs> okay, thanks for tuning in. We will catch you guys next time. Bye, everyone.